0: And last point, uh, this morning's session would not be possible without a few of our supporters. So, supporting this morning's event are the Canadian Foundation of Healthcare Improvement, the Canadian Institute for Health Information, KPMG, Medtronic, and of course, a uh, big thank you to Sinai Health System. To help welcome our speaker this morning, I would like to welcome a person that many of you will know, uh, Mark Rochon. Mark. Thanks Matt. Uh, good morning everyone.
1: Um, I'm delighted to be here this morning uh, to welcome uh, and introduce to you Mark Britnell, who is the Global Chair and Senior Partner for Healthcare Government and Infrastructure with KPMG. Um, I first got to know Mark about nine years ago when we went on a trains, planes and an <laughs> automobile tour of the speaking tour of the UK and at that point Mark had just been appointed head of health for UK and Europe, and he's held his uh, current role for, since about 2010. Uh, prior to joining KPMG, uh, Mark has held, um, held senior roles within the NHS, including being the chief executive officer, uh, the youngest chief executive officer of the University Hospital Birmingham. He was uh, a chief executive of the South Central Strategic Health Authority and director general of, uh, within the NHS. He's been to over 77 countries on over 300 occasions. He usually remembers where he lives, but often not quite sure. And he's been to Canada over 23 times. Um, And I think this is your 23rd visit. Um, uh, Mark um, has written two books of note. Um, One is um, In Search of the Perfect Health System, which is recognized as the best health book in China, and was recognized by the British Medical Association as um, the best book in, I I think, 2017. Um, Mark's genuinely interested in improving healthcare. This isn't about bringing consulting projects across the finish line and making us making the firm comply with the responses to a request for proposal and then delivering on those proposals. It's about making sure that we actually improve health systems and improve the provision of healthcare. And he's genuinely um, feels that this is about improvement. And he's here today to uh, reflect on his latest book, "Humans Solving the Global Healthcare Crisis in Healthcare." Uh, please join me in welcoming my friend Mark Britnell.
2: It's a great pleasure to be back in Toronto. Uh, Over the last week or so I've had the pleasures of working in Niagara-on-the-Lake, going underneath Niagara Falls, visiting London for the first time, I'm ashamed to say visiting Ottawa for the first time. I'm not ashamed to say I've visited Ottawa. Just ashamed to say it was my first time. And as Mark said, with a very generous introduction, this is my 23rd uh, visit to um, Canada. And all I'd like to say today is Raptors in Six. (laughs) And as you can tell, I am uh, British. uh, And of course, my favorite sport is uh, football. You may call it soccer. But I was absolutely gripped uh, and saddened by the last 60 seconds of the game. And I really do want you to win. Because if mighty Canada can beat the even mightier United States of America, as far as I'm concerned as a Brit, that's just brilliant. (laughs) But don't tell them I said that in America, will you? Okay, I usually uh, move around, but this is being uh, filmed today. Um, I, uh, as Mark said, uh, am the global chairman for healthcare government and infrastructure, and I'm responsible for broadly one quarter of all of the global revenues in in KPMG. This is not a pitch today. You you know KPMG. We've been around for 150 years. We operate in 157 countries. As Mark said, this is my second book. And before I start to uh, get into the detail of the book, if the slides will move, I um, decided to write this book. Um, I should say, actually, my first book, which I know some of you have been kind enough to, to buy and read, uh, In Search of the Perfect Health System, was uh, published in uh, 2015. And honestly, m- my day job is running a, a, an enormous global enterprise, so I'm constantly on the move, three weeks out of four. And so I wrote the first book on trains, planes, and automobiles, and I genuinely didn't think I had enough in me to write a second book. It is quite taxing for those of you that know uh, who have written a book or or perhaps done a PhD. Uh, You can't leave it alone. In fact, once I was in Russia, and a professor uh, in in Russia, uh, she said to me, uh, writing a book is like having a baby. And I said, no, no, I'm sure having a baby is much harder. And she said, yeah, of course it is. But um, it comes from you. It's painful when it comes out. And it will always be with you. (laughs) And that is what they call writer's anxiety. So I thought after the first one, and it, it did sell in 109 countries, as you'll see in a moment, I thought there's no way I'm going to write a second book. But I decided to write a second book because uh, after the global financial crisis of 2008-9, by about 2015 or so, that period as I was flying around the world, working with all sorts of clients, public, private, charity, government, that the conversation was uh, obsessed by money and usually the lack of money. But round about 2016 or so, I started to notice that some countries and some health systems started to have money but couldn't find the staff and of course, once you get an idea in your head and you 're traveling the world meeting and working with wonderful clients it 's like a scratch that it 's like an itch that you need to scratch so throughout two thousand and sixteen and seventeen, I started to go looking for this problem, as it were, but more importantly, I wanted to find a solution now, um, I think if there is anything unique about the second book. Uh, Uh, that I hope that you'll buy. And by the way, I survived prostate cancer um, 10 years ago at the age of 42, and all proceeds, all royalties go to prostate cancer, so I'm not trying to push this book for my personal benefit. It goes to research and a charity that does great things for for prostate cancer. But the real issue, I think, was, as I started to look at the problem around the world and started to read uh, about it, and I'm joined today by Dr. Charlotte Refsum. Charlotte, if you want to stand up. Charlotte is a general practitioner, a family physician. She's on a, 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 the National Medical uh, Director's Program of the National Health Service. She's a top gun, if you like. Is a doctor who's been given two years to how to have a, an out-of-body experience. Sorry, an out-of-mind. Sorry, an out-of-the-box experience. <laughs> and Charlotte helped me draft this book and, and also managed a, a team of researchers. And we we reviewed uh, thousands and thousands of books and articles on healthcare workforce, and with a very few notable, or with few notable exceptions, most of the articles and the books were long on the problem and short on the solution. They wallowed in the complexity of the situation, but did not provide clarity for action. And you will be the judge, uh, if and when you buy the book and read it, as to whether I've bridged that gap between theory and practice. But because of my global experiences, as you can see, we have, in the book, worked with and worked alongside and seen many clients who have part of the solution globally. But it's not been scaled. Now, especially for you today, we have produced um, a, a, a dedicated chapter on Canada, which is entitled Still at the Crossroads, And I'll talk about Canada at the end, but I want you to come on, if you will, come on a global journey, first of all. I think the the pamphlets are are over there, so on the way out, um, please do take them. For the last um, four years, from last year, I was one of the members of the Global Health Council for the World Economic Forum. And that's where we have the opportunity, and I say, I use the word opportunity, to try and speak truth to power, of course, at Davos. Uh, in in Switzerland in January. You'll have seen the the, the pictures with the snow. And and being part of this group has given me an amazing global purview, overview if you will, of what's going on in in healthcare. So eventually I persuaded myself that I should write a second book, uh, hired uh, Dr. Refsum, and she was plugged into our team of researchers all around the world, and we started to go to work on this issue. Um, the uh, reviews that I've had are very favourable. I, I hope that continues, touch wood. And the responses we've received, we're just, I think, a third way through our 20-country global tour on this book, trying to actually develop an argument, develop an, uh, um, uh, a discussion about the, the need for urgency in this issue. And I think that the reason why I called the Canadian chapter still at the crossroads is because you need to do something soon. That's the message I want to give to you today. But it's not the only message that I give to Canada, but also this need for urgency is a message I give to all countries around the world because sadly, no country is a paragon of virtue when it comes to sorting out global workforce issues. Now, you can see here I've still got quite a bit of Africa to go, but the book does cover um, um, developed and developing countries. And it builds on the first book, uh, In Search of the Perfect Health System, and Mark kindly told you that the award I'm most proud of is not the award from my own country, from your equivalent of the, the OMA or the, or the CMA, which is our is BMA, of course, which is the oldest medical uh, professional trade union in, in the world, but it's actually the one from China. Um, the book was translated into Mandarin, Portuguese, and, and Korean, but in 2017, 4 million Chinese doctors voted for my book the first time a foreigner has ever won the award as the best book in China. Isn't that great? And they were all instructed to vote the same way. (laughs) You're a very kind audience and the jokes just get worse from here on in. So, this is the size of the problem. Did you know the problem was this big? Hands up, please. Don't show off, but hands up. If you thought the problem was this big, by 2030, the world faces a shortfall of 18 million health workers, which roughly equates to a 20% of the total capacity to care. Now, were you aware of that? Was anybody aware of it? There's a very brave woman here. Well, I mean, this is from the WHO. It is from the WHO. Very good. And are you working or a student? I work. You work. Who do you Okay, well, come and see me later, you can work for KPMG. Well done. (laughs) Right, so good. Think about it. One in five posts by 2030 will be vacant. Now, if that does not have a profound impact on individuals, families, communities and nations, I don't know what will. But we're not talking enough about it. And I know you're not talking enough about it in Canada. And I'm going to give you some examples of this now. I should have said at the beginning, I'm going to uh, speak for no more than 40 minutes. So Mark, please do guillotine me. So there's 15 minutes or so for questions and answers and discussions. Now you know the problems my own country is in at the moment. The vacancy rate now is um, 10% already, possibly 11%. We have a great shortage of nurses, over 40,000 posts uh, vacant. And it's projected by 2027, if we don't take action soon, after a decade of austerity, we will have nearly 200,000 vacancies in the National Health Service. And we employ at the moment just over 1.2 million full-time equivalents. In the United States of America, the richest country in the world, that spends twice the OECD average on healthcare, 18% of its GDP, you would think surely a country that spends so much wouldn't have a problem recruiting staff. Well, let me tell you, I was in New York and Boston and Chicago just three or four weeks ago. They are facing a shortfall of one million nurses. Think about whether they'll be coming for your nurses. And they face a shortfall of 105,000 doctors by 2030, the richest nation in the world. So just in case you're thinking, why don't countries just throw more money at it? There's your answer. In India, where we work a lot, um, you probably know that Prime Minister Modi, recently re-elected, has developed the largest single movement towards universal health care in the history of humankind. He's going to provide social insurance to the 100 million poorest families, which cover 550 million people. Now, is he naive or ambitious to do so, knowing already he has a workforce shortage of 4 million? Naïve or plucky? Plucky, Plucky, exactly. Because universal health care is the greatest gift any country can give its people. Now, you have universal health care, don't you? But do you? Because one in six of you can't get access to a general practitioner. Think about it. In China, when they relaxed the one-child policy, they forgot to tell the obstetricians. China needs 180,000 extra-operatricians by 2022. It's not going to happen. And then in Japan, because if you want to see the future, go to Japan, and we're going, uh, my team, we're going in July, and I always look forward every year to going to Japan, because as you know, for 30 years, it, it endured economic stagnation. It's picking up now. It's the oldest country on the planet average life expectancy of 85 years of age. They, they, they're a very clever country. Of course they saw what was coming. Their uh, uh, dependency ratio, the number of old people supported by the number of economically active people, has been shrinking like it is in all developed countries. So th- they did recruit more nurses. They did train more nurses and doctors. They trebled the number of nurses they, uh, they needed in 13 years a fundamentally awesome achievement, but they're still 250,000 nurses short. So, the point of my book, and the point of my tour, and the point of my being this year, is to stir up trouble. To have this argument, and for those of you that believe in Hegel's dialectic, as I do, you have a thesis, this is my thesis, I'm happy to listen to an antithesis, and then we're going to have a synthesis. And this is what I'm trying to do now around the world and what we're trying to do in KPMG. Now, in the book itself, which is here, and I'm really sorry that we haven't got copies to sell today or give away. We've given away a lot over the last six or seven days. But in the beginning of this, uh, because I was, as Mark said, a director general for the English National Health Service, I talk about politicians. Now, I'm not talking necessarily now about your politicians, although the cap may fit, but how often have you heard politicians rejoice in extra jobs created in healthcare without planning for a sustainable supply? How often do you hear that doctors are gods or angels and nurses are gods or angels without actually making sure that their working conditions are conducive to working at the top of your game? How often do politicians rejoice in technology, yet fail to prepare the industry, the healthcare industry, for enormous digital disruption? Does it happen in Canada, or are you immune from that? You're leading the world? No, I think Britain's up there as well, sir. But the point is... The title of the forward, Cognitive Dissonance, and I'm sure we've got some psychologists in the audience, is the ability to hold two competing and contradictory ideas or values in your mind simultaneously. This is the natural state of affairs if you're a politician. But it's not good enough for healthcare. So if you like, I'm calling out the political class to show leadership, but not only the political class, as you can see here, the book covers 10 countries. Do I have to whack this with a mallet? <laughs> ah, there we go. Now, I'm going to speed up now, but Dr. Refson will make sure, with the KPMG Canada team, that by, by the end of today, either through my tweets, at Mark Britnell or through LinkedIn, KPMG Canada, that we will make sure you have these um, slides. Because I'm conscious that there's there's a lot of detail on these slides, but we did that deliberately so because you can then, if you don't want to read the book, and I hope you don't cheat and do read the book, but you can read this. So I am saying in a plucky British fashion, from a global point of view, I believe we can solve the most pressing issue in healthcare, which is the global workforce crisis, by doing these 10 things. And these ten things have never been done in concert, in a coordinated or coherent fashion. But I have seen them operate in various parts of the world, and I believe in the innate power of human beings. The cover of the book is, of course, um, a cover of Michelangelo's creation of Adam in the Sistine Chapel. But where man or human's hand or finger is connecting with God's, we have a robot. Now, I don't believe that robots will solve this problem. I, can, I believe they play a part in it. But what I do believe, somewhat divinely, is when human beings decide to do something, we can get it done. And I believe passionately that that applies for these problems here today. So these are the 10 solutions that I'm inviting you to think about that, if leveraged and scaled, will, um, will solve this problem. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, We do need more health workers, we need many more health workers, but I don't think we need 18 million. And if you ask me what the number is, I don't know. I don't think anyone knows, really. But what I'm going to do now is say that these 10 things, when put together, can solve the problem. Now, when people call this a workforce book, they're only partly right. This book is about leadership. This is not about human resource management, although it talks about in one of the chapters human resource and workforce management. This is the leadership agenda for all healthcare uh, services around the world. And then the issues of integration, which I know play heavily in Ontario, and that's why I've been to Niagara and Hamilton and London and Ottawa and Toronto. I will talk a little bit about this, but the first thing to say about this argument about workforce is it's taking place in the wrong terrain. Because, actually, healthcare is the second largest industry on the planet. Does anyone know what the largest industry on the planet is? Not the oldest profession, the largest industry. It's agriculture still. But health now is number two, and will soon, over the next period, overtake agriculture. On average, a country spends 10.4% of its uh, economic wealth on health. Now, my argument is, we have to turn the argument into national productivity. Because when you look at the last 400 years of human development since the Agrarian Revolution, the real reason why some countries are poor and some countries are rich can only be explained through productivity. So you look at wealth and the decline, it's actually how a country is able to be productive. And when you think about what productivity is, what the drivers of productivity are, I'm going to name a few and you see whether they apply to healthcare in spades. Education, research, training, infrastructure, pharmaceuticals, biotechnology, IT, building, supply chains, medical devices, innovation, leadership, good governance, and the rule of law. We have it all. But have you ever seen a national strategy that basically says we want to use health as the asset in our country to improve productivity, which in turn would improve national wealth, which will in turn would improve the contributions our countries make to healthcare. Because we know, generally speaking, when a country becomes richer, it spends more on healthcare. So these charts here are detailed. We have uh, one of our most able uh, consultants in the audience today, Shripple. Stand up, please. He looks like Superman. <laughs> On a good day, Triple's been working for the last two, three years in the Bahamas. Now we're building universal healthcare uh, in the Bahamas and the Caribbean. The only point to say is that for, we have done some work with uh, Cambridge uh, economists, the University of Cambridge. For every one dollar uh, that country spends, it will get a return of nine dollars. Now the Lancet believes, you know, the Lancet, it's the ratio is one to seven. But health is wealth. So why don't we start to think about our workforce problem as being part of this issue about the productivity conundrum. Now, because I have been here 23 times, I don't need to tell you that actually nationally your productivity is nothing to write home about, is it? So let's, have, let's use health as the Kickstarter, as the generator. Secondly, the second action, and I spent yesterday two to three hours, a wonderful two to three hours, with the Canadian Medical Association in Ottawa. It was an unbelievably rich and fruitful discussion about the role of doctors in medicine and clinical services in nation building and developing cohesive communities and societies. But you know as well as I do, that in nearly every country in the world, the default position of government is to restrict the amount of supply of nurses, doctors, and allied health professionals. Now, I can't go into the reasons why, although today, but you will know what they are. But I'm saying now, with a shortage of 18 million people, workers, we have to turn the taps on and take that bath plug out. We have to over supply and overstimulate. I do not believe that any doctor, physiotherapist, occupational therapist, nurse, I could go on, will be unemployed, willingly, in the next 10 years, 11 years. And therefore you can see, there are four very big levers governments can pull. Some, uh, the chart, the busy chart on, the, on the, your left hand side is work that we did in 2016, looking at even small adjustments such as the uh, rates of female participation in healthcare. For, so um, I will give uh, somebody a free book if they can guess which country is the highest female participation rates in healthcare in the world. Would anyone care to guess? I don't have the book here today, but Dr. Charlotte will make sure you get a book. Um, who would like to guess? I'm going to have three people to guess, okay? Um, right, the lady there. Philippines. Philippines. That's a good guess, but not right. Um, the gentleman there wearing the beautiful lavender jacket. In- India. India. Good guess, but wrong. And we'll go to the top. Uh, yes, the gentleman at the top. Singapore. Singapore. Good guess, but wrong. Okay? The answer is Norway. Okay? So I get to keep my book. But I've read it. I think, I think I've read it. But if you actually think about female rates of employment, hours worked, and retirement ages, just those three things, which are completely random, by the way, and products of all sorts of history, if you consciously start to think about it, as the Japanese have done, as even the French have done, you're going to get more productive work. And the big issue, of course, is immigration. And I, I, I do pay tripping, tribute to your uh, country in a global wave now of populism which is about stopping immigration. What I do say in my book, and I'll say it here again for the record today, the history of human development is the history of human migration. We should embrace it, it should be progressive, it should be responsible, but it shouldn't be stopped. And you, it seems to me, are thinking that through. Of course it causes problems politically, But you're a relatively young nation when actually you should be quite old. So well done. And I can see you're young today. Well, most of you. Now, there's a big debate about integration. Now, we do integration all across the world, okay? But when I was at the World Economic Forum, we looked at five large-scale health changes, which if managed at scale, would give you an increase in productivity. By the way, um, I should just say, um, productivity is not the same as efficiency, just so you know that. Efficiency is the cost per unit. Productivity is the volume per unit, okay? We will need more care, but in different ways. So these five things here, so a move to telephonic care, a move to fully primary care-led integration through Clalit in Israel, Montefiore in the Bronx in New York... Uh, people where elder people, older people wearing mon- monitors, real time monitoring in their home to stop them coming into hospital, control towers, air traffic control systems looking at population health management. sick kids, just as an example of what you can do with Lean and Six Sigma and Improvement Science. And my old teaching hospital, the University of Birmingham with Imperial College, is now looking at 17,000 job descriptions and analyzing in detail, not the jobs, but the tasks that the various tribes do, to then decide what now and in the next three years can be supported by artificial intelligence, robotics, blockchain, and cognitive augmentation. And we will have these results, which is being led by Dr. Refsum, in four weeks. Isn't that amazing? It's never been done before. If you put these five things together, and now you're pushing on integration in Ontario, you could, if managed properly, release the productive capacity to care by 16 to 20%. And of course, you have a proud tradition of involving patients But it's no longer good enough just to involve them because it's nice. It's mission critical. Now, this graph here is from a company called Discovery in South Africa. They're an insurance company and one of their products is called Vitality. Is it in Canada? No? It's sweeping Asia, it's certainly in Europe. Okay, they're an insurance company. Basically, they've started to develop care coaches and care navigators, and you can see here, as you know, there are five or six long-term conditions that account for 70% of all hospital bed days and 70% of healthcare expenditure. The trick is to empower patients to take more control of their care. When we, with Vitality and Discovery, introduce care navigators and care coaches, look what happened, more life, less cost, less time in hospital. No system in the world will remain or become sustainable unless it activates patients. And also involves and engages and uses communities. Now I should have said earlier that the workforce problem in healthcare has two fundamental problems. And I think you'll recognize both of them. The first is uh, HR or workforce in healthcare is disconnected from financial planning disconnected from clinical service planning and disconnected from education. But apart from that, it's brilliant. And we wonder why we get it wrong. And the second thing we do, because we're disconnected, and by the way, still hermetically sealed in healthcare, while the world is changing very quickly, we think this problem is a linear problem. You can plot X, plot Y, and say that's what you need. Most workforce planning in the world consists of straight diagonal lines when you know the world is very wobbly, gray, and not clear, and moving quickly. So this is a wicked problem. It's a non-linear problem which requires complex adaptive thinking. And there are two things you need to know about complex adaptive thinking. The first is to solve it, you cannot have a top-down solution. You have to give the work and the problem to the people. And secondly, you have to mobilize and engage all resources and assets in a community. In Germany, they had a very big problem with long-term care. By the way, you are approaching a workforce problem in aged care, which is almost irrecoverable in the next five years. But I'm sure you know that. But Canada's still at the crossroads. But in Germany, their first response was to allow immigration to come in from the east. But you know what happened? Merkel got into trouble. She's on her way out. And the German people said, can we have a bit more balance? And therefore, she had to turn to local communities. And what they did for an aged person who was at risk of going into a hospital, they simply said, do you want to pay for your son or your daughter or your cousin or your aunt or your next-door neighbor or your postman to provide care? There are four levels of care. Most basic, you get paid €400 per month. The highest level of care, €1,800 per month. And the state, one of the 26 states, trains those people to provide care. And it goes in once a month or so, or as necessary, to make sure that the training is worked and you're not just leaving your father there with 20 cigarettes and a bottle of whiskey saying, I'll see you next month, Dad. Thanks for the 1,800 euros. Let me tell you, in my country in Britain, if we started to do this, the problem would be nearly solved. Now, I know, because I've been coming here since 1997, that you are proud of your community links and participation and your philanthropic and charitable endeavours. Could this work in Canada? Why isn't it working in Canada? It wasn't a rhetorical question. What? Can I have some feedback? Why? Haven't you got a problem? You haven't got enough workers. taxi for britnell and counterintuitively when healthcare professionals say they're too busy they usually are but this global study that takes place every 2 years you can see that actually nearly 80% of doctors and nurses are saying we're not doing jobs no we're not operating at the top of our license And we know in England, from the Royal College of Nursing and the the British Medical Association, that between 18 and 21% of tasks could be done by somebody else. I don't know what the figure is in in Canada, but why waste all that resource? And while I'm at it, another thing about education, healthcare is the only industry. Do you know what proportion of money we spend on educating a professional and then developing them? It's a crazy number. The ratio is crazy. We're like an old-fashioned 19th century... University Educational Asylum. We spend 80% of all healthcare training money on educating and only 20% on developing. Don't you think that's nuts in a world that's changing so quickly? But what, why do we do that? It wasn't a rhetorical question. <laughs> so if you think about it, if you get people playing at the top of their game and that's where they want to play, you can then create space For a new cadre of workers that come from the working class, that come from communities, that have secondary education, underemployment, unemployment, they look like the communities they serve because they come from those communities. They are a key element of productive capability through training and skills development and they will help address need. Whether it's in India, which is the colored graph now, where Modi, by the way, the answer for Modi, he's using traditional uh, medical practitioners, as well as community medical practitioners. He's mobilizing the assets of a community, giving them enough training to be just good enough. And Bertzog, uh, one of my colleagues today, Dr. Anna Van Poek, who we've flown in from the Netherlands, is speaking at another conference today. It's not as good as this one, by the way. <laughs> but she's talking about integration. We're bringing our best global resources into bear to help this great province. Now, I'm gonna have to speed up, because I know I've only got five, 10 minutes left. But the, um, let's talk a little bit about this. This colorful slide, which you will get by the end of the day, courtesy of Dr. Refson and KPMG Canada, shows vertically industries and horizontally tasks. Now we know that actually the digital uh, dividend, that's the right phrase by the way, will be coming to uh, uh, industries like financial services and fortunately accounting soon. Healthcare, because fortunately it's a human contact sport, hands being placed on other uh, people's bodies to care, that's great. But still, it's estimated, our best guess is 36% of tasks will be uh, digitized by 2030. And we already know now, don't we, that in terms of artificial intelligence, there are reports uh, that um, uh, machines now are out-competing human beings in ophthalmology, radiology, and pathology. I don't believe that any current healthcare worker in the world, at least in the developed world, needs to be made redundant. I believe that we can use all of these people and retrain them. Because if health is the second largest industry in the world, and we know that digital disruption and the digital revolution will require training, retraining, education, and re-education, and we know that 50% of the workforce in healthcare today is still going to be half of that's going to be working in 2030. We have no other options, even if we wanted to, which I don't want to, that to use our existing staff. So th- there may be redundancies, but they don't need to be compulsory redundancies. Now I know when I uh, discussed this at the CD Howe conference in Niagara on Friday last week, I-, I believe some people were whispering, "But you can't change a ward clerk into a care navigator." You can't change an accounts clerk into a navigator. Why not? Most people come into healthcare because they love healthcare and human beings. Let's not give up on those people. And then the other whisper I heard in Niagara was, what about, he doesn't understand our trade unions? Oh, I hear you now nodding and hollering in the aisles. I ain't no preacher, but I know in other countries they have enterprise bargaining agreements. Don't you have them in Ontario? The give and the get, with trade unions. Is it that difficult, really? Have they fallen from outer space to destroy your country, the trade unions? No! Is this coming irrespective of what they think? Yes! Should we do it nicely, the Canadian way, with smiles, or not? We're human. So, what it does mean, however, and I'm in a very strong health system today, that unfortunately or paradoxically in healthcare, we're very bureaucratic and heavily hierarchical. And these are just two of the wrong qualities at the wrong time that we need. But apart from that, it's going to be fine. Now, our work on Rise of the Humans 1, Rise of the Humans 2 looks at what organizations need to do to be agile and basically you need to explode um, hierarchies, flatten management structures and then give the work to the people through, guess what, crafts, guilds or teams. And guess what paradoxically we've had in healthcare for over 300 centuries? Crafts, guilds and teams. Isn't that wonderful? Aren't we clever? Now, with five minutes to go, I'm going to ask one question now, if that's okay, and I'd like you to participate, because I do some global research, and it's in my book. I'm going to ask you now, what percentage of your staff, and I want you to be honest, have meaningful appraisals with meaningful consequences? What percentage of your... I'm going to take a photo in a moment, the hand's going up. What percentage of your staff have meaningful appraisals with meaningful consequences? Now, I'm going to start the bidding at 100%. Who will give me 100%? By the way, if I saw a hand, I'd certainly ask you to seek medical attention. <laughs> Who will give me 80%? Wow, where do you work, madam? Yeah?
3: I work at Healthcare Navigators.
2: Healthcare Navigators, well done. Who will give me 60%? Okay, he will give me 40%? Hang on. Right, here we go. Who will give me 20% and who will give me less than 10%? What, who will give me 0%? Wow. So, isn't that strange? The global average is 30%. But think about it. If you want to change healthcare, are your health employees supposed to guess what you're thinking? Because if change is a human contact sport, you best contact human beings. If we don't care for the carers, how can they care for the patients? If you're not having an appraisal about the give and the get between staff and management, what's it all about? What do you expect people to do, make it up as they go along? Because that's exactly what they do. And then they spend 30 years getting bitter about it. Yeah? So this work shows you that by age, what matters most depending on your point of life. Crudely, broadly, the younger you are, when you start off, you want money to build a life with your partner, family, or even to try and buy a house in Toronto. Of course, that's impo- we all know that's impossible. But as you get older, you want professional satisfaction, stimulation, and time to care. So I'm going to finish off now in two minutes. We know the problems, and some of the problems, so for each country that we go, uh, that's in the book, we do one good slide. One bad slide. Just in case you were wondering which one this was, this is the good slide. No, it's the bad slide. But you know all of this, don't you? But I do think this issue about one in six not having access to primary care, that really shocked me. I I think I I watch the Canadian health system. I love Canada, even beginning to love the Raptors. Go Raptors in six. Oh, I said that, haven't I? But you've got problems about maldistribution of workers. You've probably got too many specialists not enough generalists, and your nurses—it's—I—I I can't get a fix on whether you've got a nursing problem or not. I know you have an aged care, but fortunately, some clever people who uh, who were at C D Howe in Niagara over the weekend—they said the fact that you don't know means that we can't really tell you, and that's a problem in itself. But you do have some examples now where you're starting to lead the world. So in tummy medicine, it's just you versus the Australians. Why aren't you making a global export of that and link it into, as we discussed with the CMA yesterday, digital supremacy? You have a very strong digital ecosystems in part of Canada. Is it working that hard for healthcare, given that your experimentation and pioneering spirit on telehealth? We also know that some of your medical schools now in northern Ontario, because you've got problems sending doctors, 20% of your population live in rural areas, only 10% of the clinical workforce do, the medical workforce do. You can see now that in Northern Ontario, they've developed medical schools that draw in local people and they stay. And also now, and I do pay, uh, I know there's some, some leadership today from the, from the health ministry and, and the, the new, the new um, super organization that's been created. You are starting to make progress now on uh, moving from fee-for-service to capitated payments in primary care. So all of this shows progress. So. I'm not going to go through these conclusions, but I'm going, to, um, I'm going to end where I started. So, why do some rabbits outrun foxes? Does anybody know? And the people that were in Niagara at CD how you can't answer. The reason some rabbits outrun foxes is because for the rabbit, it's a question of life and death. For the fox, it's merely a question of lunch. Now, for workforce planning and workforce supply in healthcare, we are currently lunching when we know in 11 years' time, it will be a matter of life and death. So, therefore, we need more urgency now. And I hope that my presentation, uh, you've enjoyed it. I hope you've stimulated it, uh, been stimulated by it. I hope I prod you because we've now got, you've got 10 minutes to prod me back and for us to have a conversation about how we make this great country even better with its magnificent health system that was created by Tommy Douglas all those decades ago and make sure it's fit for the future so that you have a strong and sustainable universal healthcare system. Um, These are some quotes from some very important people saying how good my book is, (laughs) which is important for you to know. As I said, I hope you buy the book, Amazon or Oxford University Press. It's been a delight speaking to you today and I hope now that we can have a discussion. Thank you very much indeed.
0: Thank you, Mark. Um, So we do have a nursing shortage in Canada. Um, Just a couple quick examples. So Horizon Healthcare out east has to hire 320 nurses a year for the next five years, otherwise they will not meet their targets.
2: Is that right? Yes,
0: Uh, back in February of this year, Hamilton Health Sciences Centre had to close their OR for a weekend because of a nursing shortage. So there Is that are, right? Yes. So there are nursing shortages in Canada. They didn't Absolutely. tell me that on Monday. No, really? No, sure they didn't. <laughs>
2: Is that right? Yes. You closed the, an ER department down?
0: OR. O- o- OR? OR. Okay.
2: O-R. okay. Yeah. Wow.
0: Yeah. So we do have time for uh, some questions. So uh, if you wait for the mic, we'll bring it up to you. We're going to go to the back.
2: Could you say, hello, Brian. Uh, hi, Mark. Hey. Professor uh, Rotman.
4: Good to see you. Um, Thank you. So most industries don't struggle nearly as much with the health human human resource problem because they have market forces. Yeah. And eventually markets recognize they have a shortage and it picks up. Uh, Healthcare, and especially in Canada, has a relatively softer market. Uh, So that means talking to central planners. If you're not going to get the market to respond, it will be central planning. What has been your experience across the globe Speaking with central planners or government, yeah. when a problem, as you describe it, is 11 years out, yeah. and focus often for central planners or government question. is three to five years Great
2: out. Great question. So, um, uh, as you know, you probably remember my, my second slide showed America and China. Yeah. So you've got one state planner and one free marketeer, and the point of my book is that neither of these two solutions work. Uh, uh, um, states work. So we've got to think differently. To answer your question specifically, Brian, when I speak to state planners, what they're going to do, most people now just say we're going to recruit more people from India and the Philippines. Or even in America, you might say Mexico and the Philippines as well. And of course, that's wishful thinking in some countries. Uh, Obviously, I I was playful about uh, about, um, China and, and Canada. But think about my own country. Um, Brexit now is saying to Europeans, don't come to Europe at just the time when the government has said we're going to recruit five thousand nurses from the Philippines and India. <laughs> uh, yeah. Are we crazy? Don't answer that question. <laughs> but the simple answer is now, Brian, panic, because it's not eleven years away, it's happening now. And so but people are basically saying we want to grab as many people from the Philippines or India or Mexico or Cuba, if you're in South America or or Africa, as possible. And while that is a a short-term strategy, we need to develop longer periods of learn, earn, return. And we need bilateral, trilateral, reciprocal arrangements between countries, otherwise, sadly, rich countries will continue to to pillage the poor, and you probably know that 25% of the world's disease burden is in Africa, but it's only got 4% of the workers. Is that right or fair? And even if you don't think it's fair, you wait till Ebola spreads and then see what Western countries do about it. Remember the, how the Americans started to pa- panic about Ebola, which they thought was okay because it was in America, uh, in Africa. The world's connected. Next question. Thank you, Brian.
0: Mark, thank you very much. Stuart Cottle with Bayshore Healthcare question, you made a statement that governments should oversupply and overstimulate with respect to uh, getting on with this problem as quickly as possible. Can you describe to me, to us, a couple of states that have done that, and then answer the question, how does you convince publics to do that when they're trying to hold uh, budgets across Canada? Every province keeps looking at that 50% of healthcare. Great question.
2: So I'm going to give you two examples of countries, and and before I do, I know when I say turn the taps on, that's a glib answer, because it means that somebody's got to pay for the education, so you've got to debate about who pays. Is it the state? Is it the individual? Is it the family? Is it blended? How do you educate and train? Do you have sufficient educational capacity, clinical capacity, research capacity, and then what about the prospects of getting a job at the end of it? What's the deal, the psychological deal or contract? But I'm saying basically, well, you know what I'm saying. I understand all of these problems, but we really have to just break through it. So the three examples I will give you. So for example, in, uh, in Australia, they had a nursing problem. They liberated and liberalized uh, nursing supply. Uh, and that problem went away within three years or so. They also brought in some uh, uh, immigration as well, mainly from, from, from uh, the UK. But they, they opened up in physiotherapy. And then the two extremes, of course, are, are Cuba, The second largest export in Cuba is doctors. And then of course the Philippines, uh, which are now basically have, uh, there's an issue about quality control, but then the receiving countries have to decide whether the quality is good enough or not. We're also seeing now some attempts in the Netherlands, which I cover in my book as well. So there are places now that are starting to think about how you stimulate supply. But it does require interesting or difficult conversations about who pays for the education. Is it the state or the individual, or is it blended and shared? So I'm not advocating like you see in the U.S. where the average cost of a medical graduate is $400,000, and that, of course, then that pushes them into a fee-for-service system and makes sure that there are too many cardiologists, cardiac surgeons, and plastic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons. I'm not advocating that, but there are blended approaches that you can, that you can use, and that's what I'm calling for. Uh, right. Um, uh, uh, lady here, then Kathy. And I don't know if we've got much more time than Mark.
4: Okay. My name is Reza Deber. I'm a professor at U of T. And there's a couple of nuances that might be helpful. First, Canada is not Canada. It's yeah. on a provincial basis. And one of the things that has hurt telehealth is that in order to provide care, you have to be licensed in the province or territory where you're providing the yeah. care. I'm aware
2: of that. The
4: second is that the, um, pa- the payment model differs by profession. So one of the problems is that if you have doctors or nurses, you have to pay them publicly, whereas physios, etc., you don't. Yeah. So that that's an, it's not just the education, it's the ongoing yeah. issue. And in fact, your to nuance your thing about it's good to go away for fee-for-service, Ontario found that it was a, a big problem because they only rostered the low-cost patients and they still did fee-for-service for the high-cost patients and therefore the budget went up, not down. Um,
2: the Is that true?
4: Oh, yeah. One of my PhD students uh, d- did a thesis on that and has but published what about, a about the Hippocratic O? Well it's not a question of the Hippocratic Oath, they, they, oh, they okay. took the patients, they just simply <laughs> paid, uh, charged them fee for service, uh, charged the government fee for service for those and did the blended capitation. Oh interesting. Yeah, so you have to be a bit careful because of the distribution of health expenditures. And then the third nuance is that there is, we've done a bunch of research on nursing labour force and there's a lot of labour substitution going on, in particular uh, PSWs are doing a whole lot of the home care, a whole lot of the care in nurse. So when you're doing your projections about what the needs are, that varies a lot depending on what's the um, sector that you're looking at. That's three
2: great points. So let me just very quickly, because we're running out of time. So in some countries, even including America now, you're seeing the alignment of regulations between and across provinces and states point one. Point two, the issue about what you pay for is what you get. I have to say most other integrated capitation-based systems that you don't have that uh, perversity, if I can put it that way. That's a new one on me, uh, that you cherry-pick which, doc, uh, which patients you charge more for. Interesting. But the point is, as we talked with the CMA about yesterday, I Uh, In uh, some systems that I work in, so Kaiser Permanente are a big client of ours, in Israel, Kaiser Permanente now 68% of consultations take place in the cloud or on the telephone. in Israel, it's 58%. Do you know what percentage it is in Canada? Nobody from CDL, please answer. Less than 20%. Why don't you start with less than 1%? It's 0.25%. Now, if it's good enough for your financial service, if it's good enough for your entertainment sector, if it's good enough to watch the raptors on a mobile phone, why is it not good enough for your patients? Go Canada, go. <laughs> right, Kathy.
4: Hi Mark, Cathy oh, Um One of the things you talked about was the German example yeah. uh, where they give the patients an individual budget to purchase care. Just unpacking that example a little bit, actually, they give the patients a choice, and when they decide to take the money directly, as you probably well know, they only get 60 cents on the they dollar. Do, they do. And yet, the patients still choose that That's option. That's correct, Kathy. And it, I think one of the points that we haven't talked about is one of the reasons the patients choose that option, is my understanding, is their ability to control and direct more of their health care and to control their own health care budget. Correct. Can you talk a little bit about the need for us to re- reform our systems where patients have more autonomy, oh. control, and direction over their own healthcare care expenditures?
2: Well, that, I'm so pleased you asked such a small question right at the end of there. <laughs> <laughs> um, just before, um, can I just get Dr. Charlotte Ruffsem to reply on the, on the German experience? Because not all of you will know about this, but the results are uh, phenomenal. Sir, could you, sir, excuse me, sir, could you just give the microphone to Charlotte? Could you stand up, please? Thanks. Just because the, the German experiment, I think. By the way, the German health system is is, is as traditional as yours is. By the way, very hierarchical, hospital centric, fee for serving based, based doctor knows best. Okay, we can argue about whether you agree with that later on. But the, the Germans have been radical because they could see crisis, and they couldn't actually get any more immigrants in without having a bit a big political crisis, and so they did something else. Um, Charlotte.
3: Thank you. Um, so, when we wrote the German chapter of this book, we looked quite closely at the example that you're talking about. And we were really surprised to learn that within three years of bringing in that system of allowing people to pay for their own care, they managed to reduce the dependence on state provided home care by half within three years. So, um, you're quite right to point out that. Um, giving people choice and autonomy being able to say that they would prefer to have their sister or their brother or their son or their daughter or their neighbor come in at t- so people they know at times that are convenient for them they were pre- they were prepared to do you know to take less money um, There are some debates about uh, this has been thought of in different parts of the world so for example, in Japan, they thought about doing this and they declined because they have a feeling that it 's inherently uh, slightly sexist and misogynist they think that it sort of ghettoizes women in the home whereas in germany they take the opposite approach and they think well it just recognizes women's work in the home so there are two two arguments but it has worked very well in germany
2: and i mean your question is simply too big to answer now in what is i think minus 15 seconds Um, but all i've got hope because you've got you know because of your prior experiences in your current job that you have uh, in Canada a wonderful uh, community-based set of assets through your community teams and and, and your aged care set up as well. But it's just not coordinated. And perhaps to end on a happy note, let's hope that the new initiative for Ontario Health Teams brings all this to life and that integration is not about structures. It's about enabling patients and their communities and their loved ones to add life to years and years to life. Thanks very much indeed.
0: Thank you very much, Mark. Uh, Wonderful talk. Um, As you're getting ready for uh, the rest of your day, we are, again, we are off until September. We will be opening up September with uh, Dr. Chris Simpson from uh, Queens University and Kingston Health Center. Thank you, have a wonderful morning.